Now, this morning, we're going to be uh, looking at uh, Colossians, book of Colossians, in chapter 1. And so if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there, or uh, you can see the, the passage up on the screen. I invite you to stand and uh, honor God's Word as we read it. Starting with verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. May God add his blessings to the word this morning. You may be seated. So the book of Colossians is written by Paul to the Colossians. And um, I find it very interesting how Paul starts this letter. If you're familiar with who Paul was, you know that he was a persecutor of Christians, that he was pretty ruthless when it came to holding people accountable to their following Jesus Christ. And so he didn't really... uh, have any qualms about hunting people down, dragging them out, and persecuting them for their belief in Jesus. And then he has this conversion moment, right, on the road to Damascus, and he he begins the journey of getting to know Jesus Christ at that point. And it's incredible to see how he writes to the Colossians and see how much of a change has actually occurred in him to the point that with the fervor and the attitude and the investment that he put into tracking Christians down, he puts into encouraging the believers in Colossians. I just want to read to you a couple verses in, um, in this first chapter of his greeting to them. Because this is the first time that Paul has actually connected with them. Paul did not start the church in Colossae. He uh, was involved in the church in Ephesus, which then later planted this church in Colossae. And so this is kind of his first time. You know, the people have heard about him. They know of him. They're familiar with him, but they don't actually know him. They've never actually met him. And so obviously when you don't know somebody, but you've heard about them, it can leave some room for some doubt. And so he writes to them in this this very profound way, in this excellent way of communicating the, uh, the importance or the message of the gospel. And 
it's important that he writes this way because he needs to engage them in relationship. He needs to gain their trust because he's about to challenge some of the false teachings that are going on in their town. And he needs them to believe so that their faith can grow. And so he writes in verse 9, he says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Now, if I received a letter that was written like that, I would be pretty impressed, you know? One, because there's a lot of words going on in there that are like, you know, very, sound very smart and, and, and thoughtful. Um, but the other piece is that, like, these, this guy's never met me, you know? And from the moment he has heard about us as a church, from the moment that he has been aware that we exist and are seeking to follow Christ, he's been praying for us. To me, that speaks a lot about Paul's character. It speaks a lot about where he's come from and that he believes in the power of prayer. He believes in what he's about to say. And so he kind of really does a good job, right, of setting up this relationship with the people so that they will listen. Because there have been people in their town going around spreading these falsehoods that he needs to challenge. And some of these things that Paul seeks to challenge is that there's this thinking that questions the deity of Christ that is being spread around. They're also spreading this thinking that subjects followers to rules and regulations and laws very common to the old Jewish traditions and making the church feel guilty, in a sense, for not following these. Well, if you want to be a good follower of Christ, you need to do this and this and this and this. You know, and so they... They're, they're facing all these challenges of, well, we didn't hear about this before. And so Paul begins to write and challenge these, as well as the thinking that was presented to them, to the people in Colossae, as this new idea, right? This idea that, you know, well, Jesus wasn't really a deity. He was just a man. And, well, if you were really a follower of Christ, you know, you would be studying, and you would be smart, and you would understand. And so there's this kind of elitist attitude that is coming across from these people who have come into Colossae who are trying to deceive the believers in that town. And then they're also teaching that it's okay to worship angels, that we actually need to worship these supernatural beings as mediators to God, that if we pray to them, then they will communicate to God, and they will, uh, you know, on our behalf, speak with God, and take care of our needs. And these are some pretty strong challenges to the faith. And as I was thinking about these challenges, I realized, you know, most of these challenges to the faith are not gone. They still exist today. If you're familiar with the philosophical idea of Gnosticism, then you know that they still exist. Because Gnosticism questions the deity of Christ. It is also a very intellectual philosophical idea. It's one that it comes from study, it comes from the mind, this whole idea of reasoning. 
And we still have people who believe and they identify as Gnostics today. This idea that people have to do certain things a certain way. I mean, we can look at any number of denominations, right? And see that there are differences between how we do things. And one congregation is going to say, well, we need, to, we need to do communion this way. Well, no, we don't do it this way. We do it this way. And although there might not be wrong in how any one of them do it, there's differences. And, and they create division among God's church, among God's people. The other piece of this idea of being superior or or that you're an elitist if you, if you know the word and you study and you are a scholar. I'm not knocking scholars, right? Like it's important to study scripture. It's important to know it. But to know all of it, right? To know even the relationship that it requires to have with Jesus Christ. I was listening to the radio in um, April. And there was this interview with this professor of religions from Princeton University. And she had just written a book on Revelations. And so uh, it was NPR, and uh, I think Terry Gross had her on and was interviewing her uh, about her book. And, and I had heard that the interview was coming up, and I wanted to listen to it because I was interested in what she discovered about Revelations. You know, it's a pretty um, incredible book of the Bible. It's a little bit hard to understand. There's a lot of visions and a lot of prophecies and a lot of things that could mean this or could mean that. And you know, here was a scholar that I was like, okay, she's, she knows how to study. She knows her stuff. Let's see what she has to say. And so I'm listening to this interview, and, and if you're familiar with NPR and Terry Gross, they don't typically um, have very kind approaches to the Christian faith. Um, they do present information, but it, it tends to be lack of relationship with Christ and what they present. And so, you know, I knew this going in, but I'm listening, and, and she's saying some good stuff. I'm, I'm checking it out, and I'm like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. You know, she has great contextual information. She explains what's going on at the time that the book is written, um, and it really does help promote some understanding about the book of Revelation. But as she goes on, they get to the part of the interview where she talks about her own journey, her own spiritual walk, and she talks about how she was a part of the church, part of organized religion, and how that had worked for her, but, you know, it wasn't quite, as she got older, didn't quite connect. And she felt herself longing for more. And then she started to go down this road of basically saying, like, so I got, I went above and beyond the church. I went above and beyond just the scriptures. And she said, I started to read spirit, other spiritual writings, and I started to explore other ideas of spirituality. And so all of a sudden now, this, the truth of Scripture, the truth that Revelation says, becomes diluted in some sense by all these other things that she's using to understand and interpret. There's this lack of relationship with Christ because now for her, it's about being well-informed. It's about reasoning. It's about all these other spiritual writings. And, and don't misunderstand, I'm not against us using, you know, the writings of the saints or other... Um, people who have gone before us and who have journeyed in their faith and write about it, those are great things to, to use and to read and to gain knowledge and wisdom from. But if it's not held to the truth, to the word of God that we have, then we have to question, right? We have to really be cautious about what we believe. And 
And this is kind of the dynamic, right, that's going on in the church of Colossae at the time. That they have all these other philosophical, intellectual ideas coming in. And they need to just be careful. You know, Paul doesn't write to warn, to um, admonish them or say, you guys have gotten way off track. You believe these people and it's not right. And he doesn't do that at all. He actually writes to encourage them, say, hey, these teachings are going on. You need to stay committed to Jesus Christ. You need to stay committed to the truth that his life presented. And so in verse 15, which we read earlier, he goes into seven different things about Christ that identify and are actually in contrast to the teachings that have been going on at the time. So in verse 15, the first thing that he identifies is that he says, Paul says that he, meaning Christ, is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, when we think of Jesus Christ and having a relationship with him, I think it's a little bit easier for us than to think about our relationship with God. Because we have book after book about the life of Jesus Christ. And we have plenty of pictures, right? Now, granted, those pictures probably aren't that accurate. But still, we understand that Jesus was human, right? And so there is this automatic distinction that we can make in our relationship with Jesus Christ because he was like us. And we can identify things he did as things that we would do. And so it's easier to conceptualize a relationship with Jesus Christ. But here, Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about how your relationship with Christ can look like your relationship with God? That if Christ truly is the image of the invisible God, then what our relationship looks like with Christ could also be what our relationship looks like with God. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, which is Jesus, has made him known. Part of Jesus coming and sharing his ministry with us is that it allows us to know the Father. It allows us to see who God is. John 14, 9 says, Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? And so there we go, right? Jesus says it himself. I am the Father and the Father is in me and I am in the Father there's this tight relationship. It's like Jesus' DNA is of God. Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He is the radiance of God's glory. Verse 15 goes on to say that he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, when we think of firstborn, we typically think of birth order. But here, what firstborn really refers to is, is a position, a, a level of power, a level of influence. And so that, meaning the firstborn of, over all creation, is that he has existed before anything was created. 
And some would call into question, well, he was created. Well, no, because he is with the Father. And the Father and him are basically one. So we see that he has been in existence. It is a position of prestige. And it is a position of authority and power. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. God is the beginning. So it starts and ends with him. Verse 15, with this idea of firstborn over all creation, also highlights the sovereignty of God. It It shows that he exerts supreme permanent authority over all things. Permanent authority. There's never a question. He's always in control. It is the permanent authority. Nobody can challenge it. If they do, they're going to lose because it's permanent. He is in control of all things created. And all things have been created by him. So when we think about ourselves, we can see that we as human beings are created. So God created our minds. Well, the things of our mind then are are also a creation of Jesus. Things such as emotions, things such as our ability to learn, our thoughts, our ability to, to send messages from one part of the body to the next. This is all created by God. This is all under his control. He is the creator. Verse 16 and 17 continues to build on this, and it says, By him all things were created. Things came into being and continue to exist because Jesus is life and brings life to these things. I think a really great illustration of this is if you have read The Magician's Nephew or maybe even seen the movie um, in the Chronicles of Narnia. And you have your two main characters, which are the two kids who uh, basically get these rings and they start kind of world hopping. Um, And as they're world hopping, they wake up the witch, who we later find out is the, um, I guess this is a spoiler alert, is the, uh, the witch in The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. So they kind of awaken her, and she all of a sudden starts world hopping with them. And um, all these characters kind of get involved. And one of the worlds they fall into, or hop into in a sense, is um, it's just void. It's blackness. It's dark. And there's nothing there. And, and the witch, being of another world and having this knowledge of different worlds, identifies this as a world that is not yet created. And so she sees this as great opportunity to create her own world. But then as the um, kids and the witch and some others are standing there, they see this light coming up. And it's Aslan the lion. And, and in, the, in the series, Aslan represents Jesus Christ and, and his life-giving power. And so as he's walking, he's just kind of talking and singing and just strolling along. And life just comes. It just exists around him. And so you, you read, and it's written so well that like the grass blooms and trees begin to grow. And a world is created just as Aslan is walking. And life continues to exist. At one point, the witch gets so frightened that she has a metal bar that came with them from their jump from Europe and England, and she chucks it at Aslan, and it hits him, and falls in the ground, and out of the ground comes a lamppost. And the lamppost, if you have read, is the lamppost that is in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, that the four kids always kind of gather around. 
And so you see how, how all these things come into creation just because Aslan was roaming through. I think that's a great picture of this idea that things came into being and things continue to exist in being because of who Jesus Christ is and because of the life that he breathes into one another. Hebrews 1, 2 says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. He has created the visible and the invisible, sovereign over all. Verse 18 goes on to identify that Christ is the head of the body, the church. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 says, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. There's this idea of completeness. And as we identify that Jesus Christ is our Savior, we become a part of this church, despite any distinguishing social factor, despite our religious preference or denomination or whatever, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we become a part of his church. We become a part of his body. And if you're like me and you don't really like to be in charge of things, but, you know, it kind of happens, it's great because Jesus is in charge. You don't have to worry. If you're a part of his church, a part of his body, he's in control. Now, giving up control, you know, if you have problems with that, that's another story. But we all kind of have issues with that, I think, so... 18 goes on to say, he is the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead. As I was reading, this was one that kind of like floored me a little bit. Because I was thinking about Christ's death and resurrection. And I got thinking about, okay, he's the first among those to rise from the dead. And I was thinking about scripture and what I know. And I was like, well, okay, in the Old Testament, you have Enoch, you have Elijah. They just ascended into heaven. There was no... um, record of their actual death. In fact, there's record of them being taken up in their human bodies. Um, I was like, okay, so they never died, but they haven't really risen from the dead. And then I was like, well, but then in the New Testament, you have Lazarus. So Lazarus died, and then he was raised from the dead. And I was like, we always think about that as like this great thing. Like, oh, Lazarus, yes, he was raised from the dead. How awesome, right? This is so cool. And then I was thinking about it. I was like, that's not really actually that cool because like he had gone somewhere, right? Like he didn't have to deal with earthly issues. And then he was brought back and had to deal with things of the earth only to die again. I'm like, that's great. You know, you die once and then you get to die again. That's really exciting. Thanks for that. But so he doesn't, rise not to die again because he lives and then dies again and so jesus is the first the first person to live in a human body skin and bones live on this earth die on the cross and be raised from the dead never to die again how incredible is that no one has ever done that before no one has ever died Never to die again. He was the first. Which only further furthers the fact that he is someone to be honored. He is someone to be respected. He is supernatural. This idea that he is not a deity, yeah, you try and die and rise from the dead and never die again. See how that works for you, right? Like there is this incredible ability 
that he has as creator, he is sovereign, even over death. Philippians 2, 8 and 9 says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest plane and gave him the name that is above every name. He is honored, and rightfully so. Verse 19 goes on and says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And this kind of connects back to the first couple, the first one about being the image of God. It's again, to know Jesus was to know the Father. See, if God sent someone else, he would have looked just the same as Jesus. Because God sent someone who represented him. God sent someone who was the image of him. And so God can't send somebody else besides Jesus because that is him. That is his image. And so if we went back in time and we did this thing again, it would look the same because that's who God is. And it only further confirms God's deity and Jesus' deity. In verse 21, 20, goes on and says, through him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. So whether it's things on this earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so this is kind of, kind of the end of, of Paul's argument here. And he's saying all things go back to Jesus. All things point to him, the creator. It doesn't matter what it is. All things have been reconciled to him. It has been settled. It has been resolved. Everything gets reunited to who Christ is. He is the beginning and he is the end. And we are blessed to be able to live in a time that things have already been reconciled to him. At his death on the cross, Everything was determined. Everything was finalized, and all things have been reconciled to him. Sin has no power anymore because his death and resurrection on that cross wiped it away. And we have the ability to live in that relationship with him. We have the ability to win in this fight that we call life because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's already been determined. Paul presents these arguments to the people of Colossae to encourage them. He presents these arguments to say, yes, you are on the right track. Keep going. Do not get distracted by all this stuff. And so often in our lives, we allow so much to distract us from focusing on our walk with God. And this is not a message that says, you know, you're off track, get back on track. But it's an encouragement to know that you have a Savior who can help you. You have a Savior who is here with you, and He wants to walk with you. And if we truly look at what Paul's saying, that He is the Creator, that He is sovereign, He rules over all of these things, that He can come forth and basically take control of everything that He has created, then when we look at our lives and we look at the situations we're in, we have to say, God's already taken care of that. God's already won this battle. Whether it's self-doubt, whether it's us being concerned about how others perceive us, whether 
we are, are challenged to go above and beyond what we think our expectation is or what we're capable of doing, whatever it is going on for us in the moment, and if there's nothing going on for you today, great, but I'm sure there's probably something coming along tomorrow or the next day, right? This is life. We get faced with challenges. We get faced with struggles. But Paul's message is that we have a creator who has already addressed every issue we could face. And he's actually reconciled it all to himself already. And so if we focus on him, if we can use his power, use his love for us, use the relationship we have with him to walk through these situations, then we can kind of give up that control and say, God, you are in control. My sister, a couple years ago, went to Swaziland in Africa for two weeks, and she worked with a shelter there that was um, helping girls kind of start over after they've lived a life in abuse. And back in the fall, she got a call from the group leader, and the group leader said, hey, I'm going back over. I'm starting this house with this ministry. I'm starting another house for girls who have been abused. And I need a house, Mom. Would you do it? And so my sister was really excited, really flattered about the offer, but also really nervous. Um, it would be a year-long commitment. She would be working with an organization, but would pretty much be in charge of her own house with these girls. And she would be responsible for reaching out to these girls and um, helping them, but also teaching other African women how to care for these girls. And so since the fall, it's been neat to see her journey and prepare for this year. And part of her communicating that preparation was a blog. And in this blog post on Tuesday, February 28th of this year, she writes about this struggle, this struggle of identifying what's me, what's me holding myself back, and what's God trying to do in me? And she, she presents this internal struggle that we go through often in our lives. And I want to share it with you. She writes, So I realized it's been a few weeks since I last wrote a blog. I've been trying to figure out what to write about, and I'm still not sure. I decided I would just start writing and see where that leads me. June is coming up faster than I thought it would, and I'm feeling stuck and afraid of what's to come. As I learn more about what I'm going to be doing and the responsibility I will have, I continue to wonder if I can do it. But it's not really about me, is it? It's about those girls and what God has called me to do. God has this planned out for me. He's not going to leave me high and dry. It's so easy to get caught up in the lies that I'm not good enough and to doubt God's call. I have to constantly be telling myself that God will give me what I need to do what he has called me to. He isn't going to fail me. I continue to doubt and worry, though. I'm afraid of letting God control it because I don't know what is going to happen. It's really a lack of trust in him, isn't it? But he's never failed me before, so why would he now? It's like this constant battle within me, believing in those lies or believing what God says. Obviously, God's truth is the right way, but it's easy to get lost in the lies if you don't have your eyes on God. 
All this makes me think of John 8, 31 and 32, which says, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's like I said, keeping my eyes on God, verse 31, will help me know the truth, verse 32. I found that if I don't talk about what is bothering me, it eats me up inside, but letting it out frees me from its bondage. I don't know if this all made sense since I didn't really plan it out, but I hope that God's power and truth will shine through it. He is faithful, trustworthy, powerful, healing, and so much more. He will set you free if you let him. You just have to trust him. This is the struggle of life to continually get our eyes back on Jesus, to continually remember the sacrifice that he made. And in all things we live through, know that we have a creator who loves us, and we have a creator who has already reconciled it to himself. And use his love, his encouragement, his support to walk through it. In closing, I have a video that I'd like to show. And before we show that, I just have seven questions to ask you, and then we'll go to the video. I want you to just think about these questions. Are you living through it, it being whatever situation you are, life in general? Are you living through it as though you have the invisible, made visible God with you? Are you living through it as though you have the firstborn of creation with you? Are you living through it as though you have the creator of all things in heaven and on earth with you? Are you living through it as though you have Christ, the head of the church, with you? Are you living through it as though you have Christ, the first, to be raised from the dead, never to die again, with you? Are you living through it as though you have him who is the completeness of God with you? Are you living through it as though you are reconciled to him? Again, these questions are not to bring about repentance, although that may be appropriate. They are to bring about a realization and a confidence that whatever you are living through, he is here with you. And that's the message of this video. It's a video of spoken word from Amina Brown. I just invite you to watch it and allow his presence to be here with you. He is here in this room, in your heart. He is near, nearer than breath, heartbeats, nearer than you are to you, nearer than second chance or next opportunity, closer than tonight or yesterday. He is real, realer than touch, see, hear, smell, or taste, realer than reality. He is our reality, realer than joy, pain, sorrow, realer than the love of being in love. He is present like time, space, wind, silence, night. He is waiting like creation, like words on the tip of tongue, like songs that have yet to be sung. He is beauty, oranges, blues, every hue, every shade, sunset and sunrise. Whisper his name. He is holy, different, made human, became human, forgave human. He is spirit. 
he cannot be touched explains like sweet seconds of prayers like grandmother on knees with floor bear he is son distinctly three distinctly one the only one the only wise the only resurrector of lives he is king no earthly throne can house no amount of elegant words can espouse he is moments and voice power of choice in word and deed in fruit and seed pierced side nailed hands nailed feet innocent wounds that bleed he is believe and trust he is enough he is all he is call and purpose everything that we can sacrifice he's worth it and more much more our good deeds are mere pennies will never even the score he is behold and wow he is who what when why how he puts on the show he's the one we come to see he is souls cry and sinners plea he is the epitome he's the one no one can light a candle to or come within a million foot pole of he is above he is a father's love he is maker of ways of earth and wind ancient of days has no fear have no fear god is here